If you would open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. You may be thinking, Romans 6. How is that... uh, How's that a Resurrection Sunday text? I think you'll see it as we unfold the text this morning. Let's ask for the Lord's help one more time. Because we stand, all of us, desperately in need of His help as we come before His Word. Father, this is Your Word. Every word of it is true. Every word that You have spoken is without fault. If we have issue with Your Word, Father, the issue is not with Your Word, it's with us. It's because we just can't see. It's because we cannot comprehend. And we ask, Father, that by Your divine power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that You would open our minds to know and to understand, open our hearts to believe what our minds know to be true, and Holy Spirit accompany with that word, that deep conviction, that deep assurance that what is here is true. It is for us. It is for our everlasting benefit and Your glory, Lord. So take Your Word, open it, work in it as only You can. Meet the needs of every person present as only You can, and yet no man can. And so, Father, for whatever good that comes of our time together this morning, we have only You to praise and to thank for it. Father, move powerfully now in Your Word by Your Spirit, we pray. And exalt Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And we'll read through verse 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, We have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ 
Jesus. May the Lord bless that word and use it now as we contemplate it further. There's a great deal of buzz in our culture today about identity. The greatest concern of people in our day seems to be how you identify. Everybody, it seems, needs to have some cause or some thing that they are identified with. And that's what marks you in our culture these days. And Scripture is not unconcerned with our identities. I don't mean to imply that. In fact, it it has a great deal to say about our identity. But the concern of Scripture is not how we identify ourselves. Rather, it's how God identifies us. It's what God thinks about us that matters. Not about what men think. It's not even what you think about yourself that ultimately matters. But it's what God thinks. And not thinks in a subjective way you understand. It's what God thinks in an objective way. Through the lens of objective truth that He alone has the right and the power to mediate. And to dispense. So let me ask you a question this morning. What does God think about you? Well, you say, how would I know? How would I even begin to comprehend what God, who I cannot see, and who I cannot touch, how could I remotely begin to process how it is or what it is that God thinks of me? And I would say to you very simply that God thinks of you and He identifies you On the basis of two things. You are either one or the other. In God's sight. And that is simply this. As the Apostle Paul has laid out in Romans. You are either in Christ and are living. Or you are still in your sins and you are dead. Those are the only two ways God thinks of humanity. You are either in His Son. And God views you as He views His Son. Or you are lost, mired, overtaken, swallowed up by your sin. Which God views as His enemy. And one who must be judged accordingly. There are no other categories in life. There's not a halfway category. There's not a partial one of those views. There's not a blending of those views. You are either in Christ in the view of God or you are still in your sin. And may I say that with all the confusion that surrounds what we talk about in our culture related to identity, there is no confusion here. There's no confusion with God. He knows every one of our hearts. He knows our minds. He searches places that perhaps we ourselves aren't even capable of fully knowing or understanding. Explaining now what makes the difference in those 
two categories can hardly be contained to a single sermon. So understand that at best this is my feeble attempt from the Word of God to explain what is the most massive and important subject for us to consider in our lifetime. And it's, I might add, it's the, the most frustrating task under the sun for the preacher to try to succinctly state the, the importance of how God views us. And, and I want to just simply say this, that the difference in that identity, whether you are in Christ or whether you are in sin, comes down to what we're celebrating on this day. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What is your relation to what Jesus did on this day? What is it? Is it indifferent? Is it unbelieving? Or is it vital to you? You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we read earlier, the the historical account of that, and as Paul elaborates the ramifications of that story upon our lives, this is the most powerful event in all of history. That God made His Son live. That Jesus Christ took the authority, and raised Himself from the dead. This is the most monumental event in all of human history. Brothers and sisters, the dead live because of this day. Not just Jesus, but everyone who believes in Jesus. They live. And before we pass away in this life, we still live a life, Jesus said, more abundant, more full, more free, because we live with the assurance that just as Christ died and crucified our sin once and for all, as Paul has written in Romans, and yet lives again, so shall we. What a hope! What a monumental event, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day. Because it makes all the difference in how God views us. And in understanding that, how we then live our lives. You're here this morning and I want to lay out a truth that will hold you responsible. And that is this. That you cannot leave here and you cannot continue to live simply viewing Easter Sunday or the resurrection as a historical account that happened but has no immediate impact on your life. You and I are both accountable for what Paul now says in Romans chapter 6. It's not just a good story to be told. It's not just a wonderful account to say, yeah, I believe Jesus did that, but so what? How does that affect me now? It's not impossible to live that way. It's not just another day on the calendar, another Christian holiday. It is the most powerful day in the history of the world. There is no greater day. There's no greater truth than that Jesus was raised from the dead.
All of Scripture led up to it. And all of history has flowed from it ever since that morning when those women came to the tomb and found it empty. So how will it affect us? It must be seen, my dear friends, as the definitive event in history, not just for history's sake, but for your sake. You must see it that way. Particularly those of us who not only claim to follow Christ, but live that. We must embrace this all the more. Because a Christianity that is not affected and is not changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most deceived, most powerless, and most miserable form of religion on the face of the earth. It's no good. But the resurrection does affect us. And so this morning I want you to see with me in this passage in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 the confrontation of identities that are bridged by the resurrection. The confrontation of identities that are bridged by the resurrection. Number one is the identity of sin. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? And what is Paul referring to? Because remember, this is a direct uh, connection to what came before it in chapter 5. Paul is elaborating in Romans chapter 5 that by Adam and through the sin of Adam and Eve, That sin has been passed to every single human being that has ever lived. We are all born dead in our trespasses and sin. You are not a sinner because you sin. Rather, you sin because you are a sinner. You have received an identity in your humanity from our forefather Adam that passes down this sin nature to every single one of us. Notice what Paul says. Just back up a few verses uh, to Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world, and death then through sin, and so death spread to all men, because what? All have sinned. This is one of Paul's key phrases in the book of Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. He says it again in Romans 5.12. All have sinned. That is our identity. And Paul says here, speaking to Christians in particular, those who have believed he is asking them the question in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 what shall we say then and let's put it maybe in more common vernacular what shall we do about it what shall we do about this truth that that though we are sinners Christ died for us Christ died he goes on to explain in Romans 5 uh, the rest of that chapter that Christ died to redeem, to give life to, to forgive the sin that we inherited for Adam. And Paul says, now in light of that, what do we do? Keep on sinning? Just make light of all that Jesus did and say, well, thanks Jesus, we'll just keep living like we did before 
You supposedly changed us. And Paul says, may it never be. Shall we continue then, willingly, knowingly, in sin, so that Jesus just has more opportunity to show, you know, how patient He is with us? Paul says, no. No, may it never be that that you, Christian, continue to live in the identity of sin that you were born into, but that Christ died and was raised to save you out of. All men are born sinners, holy and completely. And because they are sinners, they will continue to sin more and more. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Here's what sinners do. And by the way, these are not the pagan sinners that are easily identifiable like Paul has just mentioned in Romans 1. These are sinners of the religious variety. They're the ones that we may be most in danger of imitating. But make no mistake about it, the sinners in Romans 2 are no different than the sinners in Romans 1. They're under the wrath and judgment of God. It doesn't matter how they've cleaned themselves up on the outside. It doesn't matter what they say they believe. They're filthy inside. Their sins have never been removed from them. And so as a result, notice what Paul says in Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. These people professed one thing and then said, hey, let's just keep sinning. And Paul says, you may be religious on the outside. You may have a form of godliness. But you are storing up upon yourself wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath when God finally calls you to account for your sin. And then in chapter 6, he's saying, is that how we as Christians should live? And the answer is definitively no way. Not now, not ever. God forbid it would be another way to translate what Paul says here. No, Christian, we cannot continue to identify with our former self that was identified only by sin. Sin that incurs the wrath of God, the right and righteous judgment of God, the true justice of God against us because we have rebelled and broken His law. We have violated His character. And so there's an identity of sin. This is what you were born as. But it is not what you now are if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. That old identity is gone. And Paul is going to spend the rest of this passage explaining exactly how it is that that old man is gone. 
Paul is scandalized by the thought. Can we just continue living in sin? And by the way, what is sin? Well, sin is any want of conformity to the nature, the attributes, the character of God and His law. Any lack of conformity to who God is. Well, what is God? God is perfect. God is holy. God is without fault in any form. No matter how small. And sin is a violation of that. And think about all that sin causes because of its violation. Look at the world around us. Every problem that we have is a problem caused by sin. Everything. Remember that God created the world perfect. Without any problems. But when sin entered into the world, death came immediately. Both in our relationship to God and eventually in our physical death. And everything in between was characterized by death, by pain, by brokenness, by suffering. And Paul is saying, how can the hope of salvation and the hope of eternal life... How can it have anything to do with that? He's scandalized by the question. Shall we continue to live in that while we claim this? May it never be. And then he continues on with a transitional verse in verse 3. Before going to to the identity of the believer because of what we celebrate today, Paul gives this little interlude here in verse 3 to connect the two. And it's like Paul asked the question again another way. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? No, certainly we as parents understand this, right? We come home and one day and we find that our children have created a mess. And it's a mess that at, you know, a certain age, they should know better than making that mess. And you look at your child and you ask the question one way. What, little Johnny, why did you, what were you, and we just, we're we're so baffled by what has just occurred that we can't help but asking questions. And that's Paul here. He's so baffled that someone might think this, that he says, is this what we're supposed to do? And then he stops and he asks a second question. He says, well, well, maybe you don't really know. Or do you not know? I'm just shocked. Don't you know? That when you play with matches, something's going to burn? You know, when... When you do this, that there's going to be a consequence to that? Don't you know? And so we ask these believers in Rome who may struggle with this ideal of their true identity now. He says, don't you know that those who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Back to back questions. We understand a little bit, don't we, then, of 
Paul's shock. His awe, really, at how they could be so confused. How could you be so confused that making a, a, a time in your life where you say you were converted from death to life, where your sins were forgiven, you were, where Jesus saved you and became your new master rather than yourself? How could it be that you've continued to live your life going forward, still married to the, the thing that made Christ's death necessary? Paul knows nothing about a Christianity that professes one thing and then continues to live the other. Don't you know? Do you not know? He would be astounded by that. Don't you know that a change of your identity has occurred? You're no longer what you once were. You are a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ's. Work in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so Paul is helpful here though. Because Paul doesn't just leave us in this confusion. Rather, Paul continues to work out how it is that Christ's resurrection makes us new. Now I want to give you a couple of things to think about as we get to that point in verse 4. But as Paul helps us and he begins to shift our thinking in verse 3 as he challenges, as he issues the challenge. Have you ever noticed that any time in your life when you really grow, when, when you make advances in life and regardless of what it is, it's because you were challenged first? Things didn't continue in status quo. Things weren't necessarily easy. But you are issued a challenge that causes you to rise to the occasion. And so Paul is doing that here by these questions. And he wants us to have a right view, Christian, of our identity in Jesus Christ. And let me just say this, that mistaken identity is one of the most detrimental positions that you can find yourself in. Not having the right identity is devastating. In battle, soldiers are killed when, my, when identities become mistaken. Friendly fire. In the workplace, friction happens when employees don't understand their role and there is friction they don't understand their identity and there becomes friction in the workplace it happens in the home when the identity of the husband and the wife and the dad and the mom and their roles are not clearly understood from scripture and laid out friction ensues and problems result in the christian life our personal fellowship with god and our witness for god is greatly hindered Christian, when you don't understand who you are in Christ Jesus, when you fail to grasp that, both your fellowship with the Father and your witness for the Son are greatly hindered. And so Paul wants to, to help us and to saturate us in a right identity. And the first thing we have to understand, Christian, is that a union, a new union has occurred. 
Paul points them in verse 4 to their union with Christ, which is a pivotal Christian truth. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. What is the price? Christ's life. Christ's death. And by His resurrection, it is sealed and you have been pardoned and given a new relationship, a new union, a new identity. He writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. You cannot be a Christian and not find your identity in Christ. The Christian's identity has to be in Christ. It's where our very name comes from. You can't say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't relate to Christ. I don't live for Christ. I don't live any differently than I lived before. There's no change in me. I have no desire for such change. You've not experienced the power of what Paul's about to talk about there. You don't know the union with Christ because it does something to us. We can never be the same because of what Christ did on this day. The Christian life is a life in Christ, by Christ, for Christ, to Christ. End of story. It is to follow Him fully. To identify with Him wholly. There's only one life in Christianity. And that is who Paul is addressing here. He's addressing Christians. And that identity is the life that is in Jesus. Life that was raised from the dead on this very morning. Life that still lives and intercedes before the Father in heaven for us this very moment. But if one wishes to live for themselves, one wishes to live divorced from this union with Christ, where Christ is all and in all to them, you cannot be a Christian. The resurrection prevents that. But for those who desire to be rid of their old self, the old identity of sin and brokenness and death that comes from sin, I have good news for you. There is a new identity waiting. Jesus says Himself in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if any man wishes to come after Me, he must do what? Deny himself. His old identity. And take up his cross through death. See, crosses aren't decorations. They're instruments of death. And die to Himself and follow Me. Don't confuse these identities. Sinner. We were born in such a way that our, the, the, the effect of our sin, the effect of death was so strong in us that we're incapable of any righteousness that would please God. You can't be good enough. You can't please God. Your holiness will never equal that of God, let alone exceed it. 
Therefore, you need the righteousness of someone else who will be acceptable before the Father. You need one who will stand as your guarantee, your surety before the Father and cover you. And so Paul says, this is what I'm preparing you for, a new identity that will put you in right standing before the Father because your old identity is not even remotely capable of producing that kind of righteousness. Our baptism, Paul says, in verse 3, carries with it a spiritual reality that Christ has changed us internally. See, baptism doesn't save us. We know that. If baptism saved you, there'd be a lot of frogs in heaven. If all it took was water. But baptism is a sign, an outward sign of what Christ has done inwardly in our hearts. What we were born as, that old identity of sin, has been killed and buried. Right? That's what it signifies. And placing someone under the water is a sign of the the death of Jesus Christ who died and was buried, placed in the grave, carrying our sins upon Him. Our sins went to His grave. Paul says, just like you show that outwardly in the act of baptism, that's what happened really in spiritual terms. That you... And your old identity and your sin were crucified and buried. That's good news. Because the only way to deal with sin is to kill it. You don't play with a rattlesnake. You don't poke at bears. Why? For a reason. That's not the way you handle them. You kill them. Or they will kill you. John Owen, the Puritan... Writer said this, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Jesus Christ killed our sin. He buried it with Him in His death. And and that is what Paul is saying. If you are a Christian, this is your new identity. It is one who no longer lives and no longer has relation to That former identity that once so controlled you. It has no more control over you. It died. Now do we do certain things from time to time. Out of habit or out of a force of uh, conditioning. Because we were in our sins. Yes. People that we love that pass away. Still have an effect on us. But they're dead and gone. How can they still have an effect? Well, they just do. I listened to a podcast not long ago, a few days ago. John MacArthur preaching. And then the podcast switched and the sermon of his father was put on. And it was hard to tell who was who. He sounded just like his dad. 
Why? Because of all the years spent with his dad, because of inherited, you know, DNA or whatever it is. He he sounds like his father. We we we, we are conditioned by our past. And so do we still sin? Yeah, from time to time, but guess what? It can't tell you what to do anymore. Dr. MacArthur's dad can't come back from the grave and say, no, John, I don't like the way you preach that text. Preach it differently next time. He can't do that. Why? He's gone. He has no authority over his son any longer. Sin has no authority over us. It's been crucified. It has been buried. It is behind the believer. And that's what our baptism shows. And in the early church, in Paul's day, baptism was just synonymous with believing. If you were a believer, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you were one who was baptized. Why? Because you wanted to publicly show everyone that your faith in Jesus Christ was real. And so that is Paul's point here. There's a link between baptism and what has transpired internally. Sin no longer has dominion over you. There is something different that is happening and it began with a union with Christ which is also a union with life-giving death. Now that doesn't make sense, does it? Life-giving death? Well, it makes sense if the thing that kills you is the thing that is actually killed. And so if the thing that causes death is removed, if the thing that destroys you is removed so that life can come in, then yes, it does make sense that there can be a life-giving death. It is the death of sin. And when Jesus died, He died to do exactly that, to kill sin. If you look down at verse 10, For the death that He, meaning Jesus, died, He died to sin or for sin, once for all, against sin, He has shattered it, broken it. And the life that He lives now, He lives to God. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. Christ the just for us who are unjust. He died for us. That makes no sense. Who would do that? in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The death of Jesus Christ eliminates our greatest foe and our greatest problem and unites us instead with a new Master, having slain the old Master. Baptism pictures that. Paul mentions something very crucial here to pivotal moment for our consideration this morning from Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 you might want to write that down for all of you who were baptized into Christ what does that mean it means to have our identity with our old self and sin killed but our new identity welded with Christ those of you who are baptized into him have clothed yourself with him Put it in good old West Texas terms. Our wagons are unalterably hitched. We can't be separated now. 
So whatever Christ is and whatever Christ has, we are and we now have. There, there's no going back. The, the, you're either, remember, in Christ or you're in sin. You're one of those two identities. So if sin has been killed and your relationship with sin has been severed and that has been crucified, that only leads to one other possibility, right? You're with Christ. And if we are with Christ, we are clothed with all that He is clothed with and we find that in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, that picture of crucifying and killing our sin, so that, here's our new identity, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, that which is caused by sin, through the glory of the Father, here it is, so we too might walk in newness of life. You've got a new life. Because Christ took your sin. He crushed your sin. He buried your sin. You are now left with only one other alternative. And that is to be united with Christ. And what a glorious place that is. Because to be united with Christ is to be raised to new life. I won't ask you to raise your hand because if we were all honest, we would all raise our hand. How many of you have ever had a second chance at something? How many of you have ever had a teacher say, you know, you really bombed the exam. I'm going to give you one more chance. And there's, right? You know, you really messed something up at work, but instead of, you know, Getting fired, this is going to give you one more chance. Okay, new, a new opportunity, a fresh lease, right? A new start. With Jesus, it's not just a new start. It's a new life. Nothing about the old life applies any longer. There's no fear. There's no more death. There's no more power over you because you have a new life that is completely divorced, broken, severed, however you want to say it, from all that came before it. That's a glorious truth. And Christ has brought us into His new life, His identity, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Notice verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, the dying of the old man, the dying of sin, certainly, Paul says, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be associated with anything that can raise the dead. Yes? I want to be associated with anything that can reverse the reality of sin and its effects. I want to be associated with anything that can control the world as God does. I want that life coursing in my veins. 
And Paul says, it's yours, Christian. That's who you are now. If Christ killed sin for you, if Christ took your sin to the grave for you after dying upon the cross, that identity is gone. You only have one option now, and that is a reality of new life. Raised from the dead. The likeness of His resurrection. The fulfillment of all Scripture. I think that's what I want. In fact, I know it is. Is that what you desire? Is that how you desire to identify yourself? Christ was raised, Paul says, by the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. Think about that for a moment. What has the Father demonstrated as His glory? We'll go all the way back to Genesis 1 and read all the way into Revelation 22. Everything in between reveals the glory of the Father. He speaks the world into existence. He creates out of nothing. He creates out of a pagan nation, His own people. He gives new hearts, new minds, new lives. Everything from the glory of the Father, from all that the Father is, from whom life flows. We'll sing it here in just a moment. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Through the glory of the Father, Jesus was raised from the dead. We are given new identity, new life. The old life is dead. It's gone. It bears no authority or power over us any longer. Think about this. The way of life and the walk of God's creation that was intended to take place in the Garden of Eden can now take place again at the Garden Tomb because Jesus has risen. What life was supposed to be like for Adam and Eve before sin in the Garden of Eden can now be ours Not in Eden any longer, but at a garden tomb. Where Jesus' friends came early on this morning and were somewhat astounded that He was not there. I guarantee you He wasn't there. Because He was risen just as He said. And when we read that He was risen as He said, that is all the authority that spoke the very world into existence. And if Jesus says it, take it to the bank. Jesus' death on Friday was merely a preparation for His new life. Victory over the grave. Victory over death that He could then give to us. You realize this? I hope. 
that had we been the ones to die on the cross as we deserve, that would be it. There'd be no resurrection for us. Oh, we would have paid for our sins, but death would have been it. It's the end of the road, but because Jesus had no sin of His own, merely was paying for ours, He could be raised and we could be raised with Him. And so Jesus' death was only a preparation to give us new life that we could never have apart from Him. Jesus leads, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Jesus led us out of our state of death and into a place of life by His resurrection. Paul says it again in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, for in Him we live and move and exist. By His resurrection life. We are His offspring. We are living Christian. If we have trusted Christ, if we have believed Him, if we have trusted fully in Him, we are living a resurrection life freed from the domination of sin. It's not a reformed life. It's not a morally cleaned up life. It's not life reevaluated and reimagined or even recreated. It is new life. Life that had never existed for us before. Sin suffocation has been broken. We are alive. We're alive. Now and forevermore. And it's a strange new reality, which, which notice how Paul words it in, in verse, at the end of verse 4. It is newness of life. It is strange to you. It's never been here before. What is this thing? When people meet Jesus as their Savior, when they experience this new life, it is strange indeed. The guilt is gone. The guilt that torments us. The fear that keeps us awake at night wondering what's next and what happens to me when I die. and How can I be right with God? And is there a God? And, and all of those things. When we meet Jesus, our blinders are lifted and everything is new. It's strange not to have sin as your master anymore. It's strange to have new appetites and new desires. I think one of the most joyous things that I hear from people who have come to know Jesus as their Savior and resurrection life has become their new identity. Life from the dead. One of the most blessed things I hear from their lips. And they often say it in some form of being perplexed. You know? I don't even have a desire to do what I used to do anymore. And they're just befuddled. My desire to sin is gone. I actually want to spend time in the Scriptures. I actually want to be around God's people now. I don't want to 
be part of that anymore. It's so weird. This is not weird. It's new. It's newness of life that could only be obtained because Christ was raised from the dead. Have you watched these incredible videos that go viral? Sometimes they're on the evening newscast of people who have one of these amazing surgeries of technological advancements and they hear for the first time. Have you seen those videos? It'll bring tears to your eyes. For the first time in their life, they, they hear something. They hear their mother's voice, these little bitty kids. And they're, they're startled at first. Paul says, that's what Jesus accomplished on this morning for us. A, a whole new life. Unbefore, or before unable to be known or even dreamed of. New life in Christ. The result occurs in verses 6 and 7 quickly as we bring this to a close. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. You're free. You're free. You talk about the great, the greatest emancipation for every single one of us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been freed. Go and live. Go and live joyfully. Go and experience life abundantly through Jesus Christ. How can you say that yeah, I'm a Christian, but the resurrection doesn't do much for me. Really? Really? It just freed you for new life. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel any compulsion in my life. I don't have really any desire, you know, to f- do this whole Christian life thing. Really? It raised a man from the dead and millions who have believed on him with him. That doesn't affect you? You know, Easter Sunday is just another Sunday. We'll have, you know, we'll have games, we'll have Easter eggs, we'll have an imaginary rabbit. We'll, we'll do all this kind of stuff. That's supposed to be more powerful than a man who rose from the dead and took others with him into new life? I don't think so. This is glorious. This is eternity shaping. This is new life we are talking about. And then Paul comes down, verse 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Yes, that's it. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, that's today, is never to die again. He can't die. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin, our sin, once and for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. How does God live? Eternally, powerfully, fully. That's how Jesus lives. And here's the good news. 
by way of a command in verse 11, even so, brothers, even so, sisters, who have trusted in Jesus, consider yourselves also to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The same way that Jesus lives is the same way that we can live. Old man is gone. New life has come. And we live it to God. Notice the similarities between verse 11 and verse 10. All that Christ is and has done, we are commanded to take part in. The, the, the word consider here is, is really one of application. Apply what Christ did now to your life, Christian. Quit living with confused identity. Quit living with the things that are dead and behind you. John would say it this way in 1 John. The world is passing away and all the lust with it. And I've said it to some of you before. Quit playing with corpses. That's gross. Don't play with the dead. Look to the living. Look at where Jesus is. And notice Paul says, all that He has and is, is yours. Now live to Him. Dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. And because of what happened this very morning, we can. We can. Nothing else in all of human history could substitute or remotely come close to what we celebrate this day. Maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, this is so foreign to me. That's okay, I understand. It was foreign to all of us at one point. But I understood this. As does everyone who comes to Christ. I am a sinner. There's no doubt about that. I've offended. Not only as James would say. In one point. I've offended in all the points. <laughs> I'm as guilty as guilty can be. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to. To be the, the best person in the room. We're all sinners. And I understand that it can be confusing and strange. And new. But new's good. New is good. And it is not by bettering yourself. It is not by becoming religious. It is not by church attendance. It is not by giving of yourself or your resources that doesn't bring you new life jesus brings you new life and the way that we embrace jesus is by faith alone how does god transact that how does god then give that new identity we believe that jesus is who he said he is we believe that we are what he said we are and that is sinners we believe that we are condemned to death. We believe that our only hope is in Him and what He accomplished as Paul has spelled out in Romans chapter 6. And we cast ourselves upon His mercy. Lord Jesus, we're sinners. 
Our only hope is your salvation. Save me. Transform me. Let me know what resurrection life means and is. I believe. May God help us all. If you've never believed this morning, to start believing. To call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, desiring to die of your sins, from your sins, to be separated from them, and to live with Him, with His life coursing through your veins. For those of us who do believe, may we believe even more. May our faith grow like the disciples pray, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to mature. Help us to continue to grow. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, only You know the hearts and the minds of those who are present. We pray that You would do a work in all of us that no man can do. I can't do it, surely. Only You can. Convince us of all that we have in Christ as believers. And for those who may not be believers, I pray God that You would convict them of their sin, show them their need for Christ and for salvation. Show them their need for new life. Cause them to know that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing that they can do in and of themselves. Oh Lord, save them. And in all of us, Father, remind us of the power of what Your resurrection means for us. And may we stand in awe and in love, and in obedience before You. As we go out this morning, may we go out with life abundant, life full and free and new, to live in those ways before You, loving You, adoring You, following You. May the truth of the resurrection not be a yearly event where we tip our hat to what You did, but may we go to bed every night with it on our minds as our hope. And may we awake with it every morning as our confidence. That today will be different because of this day. So change us all, Lord, for Your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' precious name.